Uh, I, I really think the Lord has a sense of humor. Do you know? Because after hearing that wonderful little comments about parenting and kids and Christian values and all that stuff, you know, wouldn't it be great today just to have a, you know, a scripture all about outstanding parenting and that kind of stuff? Do you know, we're about to read a scene that is basically something like out of Jeremy Kyle or Jerry Springer. It, we're about to read a family that is probably one of the most dysfunctional families you can find in the whole of the Bible. This is the passage that we come to. We're doing a series on Genesis at the moment. And we're coming to a passage uh, in my Bible entitled Jacob's Children. We've been looking at the life of Jacob. And uh, just prepare yourselves um, for 12 sons and one daughter being born in the space of probably seven, eight, nine years under one roof from one guy and four lady friends, shall we say. <laughs> Two wives who are both sisters, married to one man. Maybe a potential there for a little bit of tension, you can see. Any sisters here? And two of their servants. So even before we start, you can see that the stage is set for something of a interesting, you know, family life under Jacob's mighty leadership. And if you are, perhaps you're not a Christian, and you, you might just possibly think, you know, that, oh, these Christian families, you know, they've got it all sorted. I'm sure, you know, there's never any arguments in their houses, and there's never any tension, and, you know, I'm sure it's all sort of perfect. And believe me, this is going to dispel any of those, perhaps, false impressions you might have. Prepare yourselves for an interesting few verses. We won't read all of it. We'll just sort of go through and, and, and catch the main highlights. So, Genesis 29, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah, so this is two daughters, the main, the main ladies we're going to be focusing on, Leah and Rachel, sisters married to one guy, Jacob. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren, and Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the, because the Lord has heard me, so he has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I've bought him three sons. And therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. And therefore she called his name Judah. And then she ceased bearing. I'm tired already. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob, no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who is withheld from you the fruit of the womb? And then she said, here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may, she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife. Jacob went into her and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. And then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. And then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. Let's look on to, to verse 19 because I'm tired and hot from reading all these babies. Verse 19, lots of babies being born. Leah conceived again and she bore Jacob a sixth son. And then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zubalun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. And then God remembered Rachel. God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son 
and said, God has taken away my reproach. And he called his name, she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that amidst chaos, your grace reigns. Lord, we praise you that you are a God with wonderful mercy. And that even when the disappointments that these ladies were facing are real, you are a God with answers. You are a God who acts. You're a God of incredible kindness. Amen. So, the amazing thing is this, is that to be a Christian, to follow God, means that by grace, you get to inherit a whole load of amazing promises. So just as in the natural realm, when someone dies, you may well come into an inheritance of stuff you didn't really deserve. When you become a Christian, because of Jesus' death, we get all this amazing blessing that we didn't deserve. And in fact, it was the same all the years ago when Jacob was alive in his family. His family was a family given amazing promises by God. God said, I'm going to bless you. And through you, the nations will be blessed. And eventually, one will be, will be born called Jesus, who will be part of your lineage, who will save the world. I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to give you peace and prosperity. God, in his mighty grace, had poured out massive amounts of promises over Jacob's family. But despite the promises, what we've just read is this, is that at the center of these few verses, despite all these promises that should ultimately have carried them through any setback and disappointment, when Leah and when Rachel faced their own real disappointments, we find that both these ladies, understandably, actually make some serious mistakes. And what we're going to look at today is this. It's a very simple point. What do we do when we, as a people with lots of promises, what do we do? How do we handle the inevitable disappointments and challenges that come our way? And what we have seen in those scriptures with Leah and Rachel is in many ways what not to do. I mean, we're going to see some good stuff in there as well. But in many ways, the things that they do are actually helpful to us as kind of negative examples. And we're going to look at that under the banner of discernment, i.e. when we're facing disappointment, we have to discern really what's going on in our hearts. And then secondly, we're going to look at the, the phrase I've called it is that of displacement. So we're looking at discerning within our disappointments, what's really going on in our hearts, what was going on with Rachel and Leah. And then once we've seen that, we're going to look at the solution, as it were, and that is to displace the disappointments. What do I mean by that? Well, all will become clear in a few minutes. So first of all, then, we have these two central characters that we've just read about. Leah, we might summarize her as babies, but no bloke. And Rachel as a bloke, but with no babies up until right near the end. And what is so fascinating about the Bible is that it is totally, breathtakingly, brutally honest. Okay, I love that about the Bible. It just, on every page, it shows the positives and it shows the negatives. It doesn't point, portray anyone as without fault, apart from one person whose name is? Jesus. There you go. Always the right answer at church. <laughs> Jesus. So we see here a mixture. They get some stuff right, but what we also see is some serious things that actually they end up doing in that place of disappointment that we can learn from and hopefully avoid. So first of all, then, Leah. She's fascinating. Leah, we see her. She, oh, that rhymed. We see her, Leah. Um, I'm a poet, and I don't know it. Anyway, Leah. So Leah, it says in the previous section, was physically plain. 
She had weak eyes, whatever that means. And last week, Hugh explained that. Unfortunately, what that meant was that she actually, she didn't have the love and affection of our main character, Jacob. He liked her apparently physically better, in his eyes, uh, sister, Rachel. And so she was in the place where we read last week, staggeringly, she does something that I wouldn't advise anyone do, ladies, if you're in this place of anything like this. She, she tricks her way into marrying him. Now, we, we don't know whether it was her dad putting loads of pressure on her, but let's, he had seven years to work this out. He probably whispered to her, hey, Leah, hey, let's, let's get you married off, because let's be honest, it might not happen otherwise. Let's get you married off, let's sneak you in that night, and bless her. I mean, I, I, my heart goes out to her. She's like, good plan. I mean, it, it's sad. I mean, I have to be honest, and this is not for you to go, oh, I know what it's like to feel physically very plain and not very loved. No, I do. In my teenage years, I went to a boys' school. Not good for developing social skills. I went to a boys' school. I had huge, fuzzy hair. Not just curly, fuzzy. I had big glasses with, like, the bar. You know, in the 80s, they had the bar across, yeah? Often little bits of sellotape because I'd, you know, fall over and stuff. And lots of spots. And a tiny bit chubby. It wasn't, it wasn't a very good sight, to be honest with you. And I had, like... You're not laughing. This is awful. This is, you're, you're like, this is very worrying. I was, I, I had like super negative confidence. I was just like Mr. Blunderboy. And I remember one incident that just crystallised my whole life in my teenage years. I remember walking home from school through town in my school uniform with my, I had, you know those pee bags where you're like a drawstring? You know what I mean? They're weird, aren't they? Really hard to hold. And I had something wrapped around me. And I had my, my other bag, Stanford Endowed Schools, with a sort of emblem on it. And there I was, walking along, big fuzzy hair, glasses, spots. You can see the scene, walking along, and a violin around my neck for good measure. Walking home like, be cool, be cool, Tom, be squeezy cool. And then I see not one, but three very attractive teenage girls. And I'm like, it's okay. I'm sure they can see past you, and I'm sure they'll love you, Tom. I'm trying to be ultimately cool, and just as I get near them, I trip. And not just like a little stumble, bang on my face! My violin flies over my head, spreads everywhere, bags flying, legs splailing. It was a very, very painful moment in my life. And that kind of summarised me. I know what Leah's feeling, okay? I know the pain of feeling like that. But Leah, bless her. Let's just be honest. Leah, tricking a man to marrying you, it is not a good plan. You know, you can imagine on the wedding night, you know, there they are, he's in bed waiting for her to come out of the, out of the bathroom and actually springs. Cooey! Surprise! You know, it's, it's never going to work, Leah. So first of all, she's made a terrible mistake. Ladies, manipulation, it don't work, okay? Man, he would have felt like a caged animal in that marriage. So lesson one, number one, manipulation, trickery, it's not a good thing. But secondly, then she's, she's obviously thinking, well, how can I... I'm obviously disappointed in my life. What else can I do? I know maybe if I give him sex, maybe that will mean that he comes to love me. And I think sometimes we can think there's a, a connection between sex and love in the sense that I think sometimes, I might get into trouble for saying this, maybe ladies can think that if a man is sleeping with me, he must love me. And the reality is clearly the case of, right, with Leah, that isn't true. He keeps sleeping with her again and again, and, and it says he hates her. I mean, it doesn't say he's not that into her. He says he hates her. You know, he doesn't rush home after work. He doesn't remember her birthday. He doesn't do surprise trips on the anniversary. He loathes her, is what the Hebrew says. He hates her. 
but he keeps sleeping with her. It's, it's brutal, isn't it? It's the Bible. It's brutal. So this guy, he's happy to sleep with her, but there's no indication that he then says, oh, well, because we've had sex, now I feel so much love for you. So second key, again, ladies, if you're in the situation where you're with a guy that you like and you're thinking, maybe if I sleep with him, maybe that's what he wants, that will definitely secure you know, the love element in our relationship. Don't fall for that mistake. Believe me, it didn't work here and it doesn't work now. Third thing that we see here, the third thing that she does in this place of disappointment that we can learn from is she then makes the even bigger catastrophic blunder that many people are still making today, which is, well, I've tricked him into marriage. He didn't seem to like that for some reason. He, I've given him my body and that doesn't make any difference. I tell you what, if I give him lots of babies, maybe then he will, he will fall in love with me. And that's why she calls his name Reuben, which literally means see a son. I mean, it's kind of tragic. She names him a name, hoping that he'll go, oh, now I love you, my love. And the reality is, is that in any relationship, um, if your love is not there already, having children in the mix, it will not mean that you then fall in love with each other. Actually, certainly my Josie experience has been that having children, amazing blessing, love them to bits, fantastic. However, after months and months and months of sleepless nights, early starts, vomit-stained clothes, etc., If our love wasn't strong for one another in the first place, you know, it would be a very tricky situation, should we say. Actually, if the love isn't there, first of all, babies coming in will not bring you together. Often, actually, it can have the opposite effect. It can actually mean that things go wrong. And this is something I still think in the world in which we live, many couples are like, well, kind of run out of conversation, Um, kind of, you know, we're together, but um, it's not really that, let's have a baby. That'll mean that we fall in love. And unfortunately, it it doesn't actually, it doesn't work. We see here, his heart remains hard. So Leah then, in a place of genuine loneliness, because as we can see here, is it that she, is it that Leah just thought so much of Jacob? I mean, if you read the previous verses and you continue to read, you see that Jacob, with all, you know, with all respect to this guy, he is a very human, shall we say slash at times a wally. I mean, this guy, he makes a lot of mistakes. He's repeatedly sleeping with women left, right and center, which we can think, oh, I'm sure that was culturally okay. Well, maybe, but was it okay in God's eyes? I don't know whether it was. This guy, I think, he hates her and yet he keeps sleeping with her. To me, that's pretty harsh. To be honest with you, that's almost a bordering on an abusive relationship. Why was she still with him? What was going on in her heart? Why was she craving this very average guy, guy's love? In fact, I would say he's probably not that lovable in many ways. Was it just that she really loved him? Or was it actually that it was not about him really, but it was about her? Actually, what was going on was that in her, there was a deep desire to be loved that she was projecting onto Jacob and going, well, he's my only possible ray of hope that someone might love me. And actually, this story is not so much about her really in love with Jacob, but actually, my honest view of this is that it was actually more is telling us about the human condition, that in her, we can all identify with. I know I can. And that actually, she's almost probably put up a bit of a fantasy about this guy that isn't even real. And so she's sticking with him, desperate to get his love, because she thinks, if I get his love, then I will be satisfied and my life will be complete. 
And so she's trying every which way, sex, babies, whatever, and it's all, it's all not working. And so in that place of disappointment, the things that she did, we can first of all learn that actually they don't solve the issue. And the amazing thing is, and this is the, the beauty of Scripture, is that it, it's so clear that this is the case because the next main person that we look at is Rachel. Now think about this. Rachel, who has the bloke but no babies, Rachel has the very thing that Leah has set up as a bit of, a, a bit of an idol, really, a bit of a god, the love of Jacob. In Leah's heart, she's thinking, if I can just have that, if I can just have that through any way possible, then I will be happy and my life will be complete. Rachel has that exact thing. She has the love of this guy. And yet actually for her, it's not enough. And we find that she is desiring and envying the very thing that Leah has. She actually is walking, talking proof that the love of Jacob would not fill that hole deep in her heart because she has it and yet actually she's still craving something else. Now she, she obviously in the world's eyes as the prettier girl would have it all. But actually this is so, this is so real, this story, because it tells us that although they may have looked different physically, they're both actually in basically the same situation. They're both in a place of real pain and looking in an earthly realm to fill that with something that they believe will bring a solution, but what we're actually going to find out ultimately won't do that. And in the case of, of Rachel, desperate for a child, man, I know there may be some of you here today and that's the situation you're in. And oh, I just, my heart goes out to you guys, if that's you. It, it, would, it, it would be so difficult. This is a, just a journal entry from a, a lady in the church who for many years, her and her husband couldn't have kids. And then literally, miraculously, God did a miracle. But this is just a little entry. She says, another tough day. I feel schizophrenic, not quite understanding my own emotions and desires. God, I pray you would teach me more of this through, through this and lead me in your ways. It was Mothering Sunday, and even before church, I felt fragile, though most of the time I do feel strong and know this is from you. Once at church, I could not cope with my emotion and the continual reference to mothers, though I knew it was appropriate. I think my main fear is isolation, being the only person in this situation not able to understand the feelings of those with children and then not be able to relate to me. I feel so angry at times, almost as if it's my right to have a child, which I know is not true. God, please take me through this quickly and teach me what needs to be taught. Even as I write this, I know this is not how you work. And so instead of pity, I'll write down my emotions and submit them to you. Identity. Who am I? What does the future hold? Pain. Never being able to experience holding or carrying a child of my own. Anger. Why me? And in this entry, we just catch a glimpse of what it is like for, for couples who can't. And I don't just want to gloss over this this morning. I don't want to just rush upon that and trample on it. I want to just say that, that, that this is something of great pain, of real pain. And yet I want to also humbly say that and ask the question, just as with Leah, was it really just about having a guy or was there something deeper? And I think when we look at the text here, we can see that actually as well as just, you know, the obvious pain of wanting a child, there is something deeper here and we mustn't miss it that's going on. We have to discern amidst the disappointment, what actually is, what is she feeling? And I think in addition 
to just the raw pain of wanting a child, there is something else. And we see it kind of come out in a few ways. So it's interesting that when she gets her, her maidservant, Bilhah, involved uh, in the, to, to actually have a child kind of on her behalf, it's interesting the name of the second child, which is Naphtali, which means I have wrestled with my sister and I have prevailed. She's actually, as well as wanting a child, there is a competitive thing. It's amazing. She names her child after the fact that the birth of this son in some way means she's beaten her sister. It's quite amazing. And then fascinatingly, when eventually God does give Rachel her very own child, and his name's Joseph, she says, God has taken away my reproach, my shame. Now, I totally understand what she's saying, because in that culture, it would have been a shameful thing not to have kids. But it's interesting that she doesn't name him and, and make the comments something like, oh, this is my son who I'm just mad about, and I love him, and he's great. It's actually, the main thing that comes across is that Having this child has removed my shame, which again, I, I, I understand, or I, can, I hope to understand something of that. But it's telling us that actually, that it's not simply that she wants a child, but deep down, actually, there's something else that she's craving, that she believes the child will remove her shame. The child will enable her to prevail or beat her sister. In some ways, be able to say, hey, look, Leah, I've got the bloke and the baby. And that's why it says in verse 1 of 30, it says, when Rachel saw that she bore no children, she envied her sister. Envy is a very strong, specific word. She really hated her sister for it. And then it says, and she, it says, she, she, give me children or I shall die. She's furious. She's not just disappointed. She's absolutely furious and full of anger. And I think sometimes, sometimes in life, when... You see, this is, there's a, I, I saw myself. When I was looking, I thought, this is actually me. Because it doesn't have to be just about not having a child. When there is something in our life that we so want, other than God, that we so put our emphasis on, that we so believe, if this occurs, this one thing in my life, if I get this, then that's actually an idol. It's actually something other than God. And I think, actually, there's a little element of this with Rachel. I think she, just, she wants a child. I hear that. But I also think there's a deeper thing here that actually she's almost enslaved to this thing. And it's changed, making her do things I don't think she would normally do. She's full of envy, full of rage, full of anger, and saying, by my having this son, I've now prevailed over my... It's almost like, you know, I've got more stickers on the chart than my sister. The sibling rivalry is, is right at the surface here. And the anger she feels, I think, is a little indicator. I know for me in my life, one of the truest indicators, when I suffer disappointment, whether it's, it's just something that, yeah, these things happen, or whether actually it's something in my life that's got a bigger grip and God is not allowing to happen at the moment, when that thing is, is jogged, when I don't get that thing, and when I see rage or anger coming out of me, I know that there's something slightly out of kilter there. I know that the thing I'm wanting has gone from being a healthy gift, being a good thing, to be honest with you, to becoming a God thing. And I know with this, it's the most sensitive of issues. I know wanting a child, you know, I understand that. But with, with her, it's somehow gone into that zone in her mind and in her heart. And that's, I believe, why she's full of envy and anger and calling 
the children that do come names that tell us something about her heart. And I don't say that to belittle her or to be harsh on her, because I can see myself totally in that. I mean, man, I just, all the applications were coming out in my life thinking, I mean, a silly one, but it's embarrassing. When I used to play squash at school, I used to play, and I was quite good, and I'd be playing away, and I remember when I started to lose, and, 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 I, and it was almost like a fear of failure thing, because I think that's with Rachel, I think it's almost like a fear of failure. When I start, saw that and I realized I was going to lose, I would get furious, like ridiculously angry. Not just kind of like, oh, I'm disappointed I'm going to lose, but it was telling me that actually deep in my heart, I had to win, I had to have that thing, because deep down I was actually more insecure than I realized. And I was thinking if I just had that win, it would make me feel not like a failure, make me feel like a success. And actually, it was all an illusion anyway. But I think there's something of this element going on with, with Rachel. And so what I want us to learn from this, and therefore the first of all, when we face disappointments, it might be a very similar thing to Leah. There's just a desperate need to be loved. Or, as with Rachel, maybe a, a real desire actually for success and to not fail in something. Either way, when we're in those moments of a great disappointment, the first step is here, we need to discern what's really going on in our hearts. And even as, as I'm saying this, I know the Holy Spirit all across this room will, will be reminding many of you and bringing to, to, to the surface things in your life that you think, actually, that disappointment, I know that really what was going on was this. I thought it was about that, but actually deeper down it was this. Now, I know this is a little tender, a little painful, but bear with me. The reason I'm, I'm talking about this is because once we see that, once we see that thing in our heart, what it does is it allows us to move on. It allows us actually then from that place of seeing it in our souls and in our hearts to say, well, wait a minute, Leah just kept on pursuing that thing and Rachel just kept on pursuing that thing and ultimately that didn't bring them the deep sense of completion that they were looking for. So what does the Bible offer? I feel laid bare, Tom, by what you've been saying. I feel exposed to a degree. I can see that in me. What, what's the solution, Tom? Is it just to leave me like this dangling? No. Because what we see in Scripture, and this is honestly true, every single part of Scripture points to one amazing man. Every part of Scripture. And his name is Jesus Christ. You see, in the New Testament, it says that every promise finds its yes in Christ Jesus. It means that every element in our soul that ultimately God has shaped in such a way that we desire a certain thing, ultimately the real sense of completion, the real sense of satisfaction is only found in Jesus. And you're saying, what are you talking about, Tom? How can possibly my sense of loneliness or my sense of, of, of needing to not fail or, or to have a chance, well, how can that possibly be met in Christ? Well, there's three ways which we'll finish with. How does Jesus displace the disappointment in our soul? Well, you know, think of ourselves like a, like a beaker of water, okay? Here we are, here I am, a beaker of water. And I'm full of the water of disappointment, yeah? All I can think about is my disappointments in my life. Here they are. This is what I'm defined by now, okay? Yes, there's the promises of God, but this thing has derailed me. It's taken me off that place of focusing on that, and I just feel defined by it. How do I get as it were, beyond. How do I get rid of these disappointments in my soul? There is one solution. It is by the displacement of them. What do I mean by that? I mean this. 
is that the Bible says that when you become a Christian, is that Jesus Christ, he comes into you. So like a big brick going into water, what happens to the water? It comes out. And this is actually the wonderful central solution that scripture offers us. It says that when actually in our lives we have had disappointments and we can feel them here like Leah and Rachel. And we think, I want to be free from this thing. The one thing is not to do is to keep focusing on it. But actually, we fill ourselves, as it were. We allow God to fill us with Christ like a big brick, as it were. And out we come. We find the disappointments that used to just define us and be the only thing I could see suddenly come squirting out of the glass. It doesn't mean it's all easy. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is there is tangible change. And there's three ways that Jesus does this. First of all, Jesus is our hero who inspires us. What do I mean by that? I mean this. When you're facing disappointment, you need to dwell upon the fact and the truth that Jesus, as fully human, is someone who in every single way knows what it is to face the trials, the disappointments, and the challenges that you and I face. And simply knowing that truth, knowing that Jesus, yes, who's God, but knows what it is like to go through every pain that we go through It changes things. As we allow that truth to weigh heavily in our soul, it does shift things. It doesn't necessarily take away all the disappointment, but what it does is it goes, hey, actually, I have a God in Jesus who knows what it's like to feel like Leah. You see, Isaiah 53 says that there was no beauty, no physical beauty about Jesus. I mean, I wouldn't say he was ugly. I mean, that would be just blasphemous. But the Bible tells us he was plain. Okay? I don't know what he looked like, but he was plain. He was a plain-looking guy. He knew what it was to feel like Tom Shaw walking along with your violin around your neck and not being the cool guy and not having girls think you're great. He knew what that felt like. Isn't that amazing? Our God, Jesus, on this. And I allow that truth when I'm feeling rubbish and feeling wildly unattractive, perhaps like Lynn, I think, actually, Jesus doesn't fix it, but bosh, there we go. Jesus knows what it's like. He was born in Nowheresville, Nazareth. He, he, he was rejected by his mates. He was rejected by his family. And on the cross, even it says, his father turned his face away because of my sin. Jesus knows what it's like to feel like Leah. He's a hero who inspires the disappointed. But even for the Rachels, the ones who perhaps deep down are craving to not fail and to have an apparent sense of success, actually Jesus knows exactly what that's like. Think about it. This is God on earth. And yet he knew in order to follow his father's will, he would have to follow a path that actually, to those around him, made it look like he had totally failed. When he hung on the cross and people jeered at him, every fiber of his being would want to say, oh, I want to show you that I'm God. It says he could have summoned 10,000 angels when he was before Pilate. And he says, actually, no, not my will, Father, your will. So what's this? Jesus, he would have identified just as Rachel, I don't want to be seen to fail in anything. Jesus knew what that was like. And yet he went into that place of being an apparent failure because he knew it was his father's will. And that means for you and for me, when God allows us to go through times in our life where we, outside of our control, there's nothing we can do to control this thing, as Rachel was feeling, and yet actually it seems like therefore we're failing, do you know what? We can go, I have a hero who understands. And I allow that truth to go in my soul and all the disappointment and the bitterness, which is poison, comes flying out. I have to keep doing it 
Again and again, daily. He's a hero who inspires the disappointed. But secondly, it gets even better. He's a saviour who loves the disappointed. You see, I believe Jesus would have looked down at Leah when she was in the human realm going, I feel this hole, this sense of I need to be loved, and I'm putting it all on this Wally Jacob. I'm putting, if he could just love me, then I'll feel complete. And you can almost imagine from heaven Christ saying, No! Even if you got it, like your sister got it, it wouldn't satisfy. I love you. God of the universe, I'm wild about you, Leah. You might not think you're physically anything. I don't care. Because in eternity, you're going to have a new body anyway, the Bible tells us. I love you so much. I mean, just, ah, oh, the frustration of the father when he looked down on Leah spending year after year, straining after this love from this one guy. And she's like, God would be like, oh, Leah, I love you so much. And that's why he went to the cross. He died for Leah's sin and for my sin and your sin. His saving action wasn't just a word, it was an action. He gave himself. That was the extent of his love for Leah. And so if Leah had had a glimpse of that, as we have a glimpse today, it will change our lives. And even for the Rachels, who were in that place of thinking, I just want to succeed in this thing. Actually, one glimpse of the resurrection and the great success of God triumphing over sin and death. That great success, when we see that, should displace our desire to be successful in the world's eyes. But we should, Christians, we're not going to get caught up in the greatest triumph, the greatest success, the greatest thing that's ever happened, which is a man conquering sin and death so that we can know God and be reconciled with him. If that isn't the definition of a successful thing, I do not know what is. Which means when I find that craving in my heart to bring numero uno, to make sure that everyone around me knows that I haven't failed in something, I just need to be humbled and say, God, I'm sorry. Lord, I've made that thing an idol. I turn afresh and I gaze upon you, the triumphant one. And I allow that to dispel the creeping in disappointment in my life. So he's a saviour who loves the disappointed. And thirdly, now this is amazing, he's a provider who gifts the disappointed. Because I want to say this with all my heart, okay? A, a desire for a spouse, for a husband, or for a, a wife, if you're a gent, a desire for a baby is not a bad thing. Please don't think Tom's just saying, stamp on those emotions, they're wrong. I'm not saying that. They're from God. They are good things. They're beautiful things. They're wonderful things. And you know, in addition to all those first points I've made, the final point I want to say is this, is that God, as we pray to him, he really hears. He really hears. And as we say, Lord, I'm lonely. I feel like Leah. I want a loving husband. I cannot guarantee he'll say yes. But what I can guarantee is this. He may say yes. And he always hears. And once you know ultimately that you have a loving God who's for you, it takes the edge off that desire anyway. When I, 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 and this is not a joke, when I think of the fact that I have a wife like Josie, this is a total proof that God exists. <laughs> because, and I'm not just saying it to bigger up, I mean it, she is so out of my league. She is just, she's going to hate me for saying this, but she is, I mean, physically obviously gorgeous, but she is just amazing. And I mean this, you know, God heard my little cries. Lord, please. It's not a bad thing to do, is to pray. 
I cannot guarantee God's going to say, yeah. But do you know what? I'd encourage you to pray about it. And it may be that you're more like Rachel. You think, I actually really want a child. And you put those first two truths into, 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 into place. You think, but nevertheless, I still want a child, Tom. Pray for it. Pray for it. It's a good thing. He's a provider who gives gifts to those who cry out to him. We have a wonderful God. And this family is like a picture of what it is to be in God's family. We have amazing promises, like Jacob and his, you know, Jacob the gigolo with all his ladies. We have amazing promises. And you know what? That doesn't mean that we're never going to face disappointments at all. But what God wants us to say is this, is when we face them, when they come our way, is to say, Father, help me to discern in my soul what's really going on here. Help me to discern what's really going on here, not just so that I can get all introspective, but as you show me what's really going on here, then I can give it to you and I can say, Lord, fill me afresh. Fill me afresh with the knowledge that you are enough. Fill me. Allow the things in me that are just flooding me right now. Lord, fill me so that as you fill me, these things are displaced. It doesn't mean that all of them go away, but what it means is, is our perspective is changed. And the more that we say, God, won't you be the main thing in my life? Won't you fill me, captivate my vision? Won't you be the one that my life is all about? What that does mean is the things that seem so important as somewhere, I think a song or a Bible verse, it says, grow strangely dim. That's the promise of our wonderful God. Shall we stand? Now, I know we've looked at some big things. I'm just going to ask, we've just got a few minutes, three or four minutes. I really want to give you a chance, guys, to respond to this. We do have a wonderful ministry team in red t-shirts who would love to pray for God's filling of you. And you may, you may not fit into a category exactly like Leah or Rachel. It may be something very different. But you know what? It doesn't matter because the truth remains. That actually God today wants to fill you with a knowledge of his son so that the things that seem so overwhelming, actually, by his grace, you can see breakthrough on. And you can see a rising above the things that would have swept you under. And you can either respond right where you are, right here. I want to say that if you don't know Jesus here today, I want to say, you know, you can very simply, right now, you can just say, Lord, I want this. Why don't we just close our eyes? You might have been hearing today and saying, Lord, I, I want to be someone who has Christ at the center of my life. I want to be someone who, who gives my sin to Christ so that I can know the righteousness of God. I just want to say, if that's you here right now, I just want to encourage you, just raise your hand. Signal to me that you know that you want to go Christ's way. You want to give your life to him. You want to trust totally in him. I would love to pray with you. I would love to talk with you this morning. I'd love to explain more about what it is to know Christ in you, the hope of glory.